Today, I'm talking to Mike Edwards, who I'm sure you've heard of. He's a well-known journalist, an author, and a major in the Army Reserve. He's also a trustee for Erskine, which we'll talk more about later on. First, though, let's find out how Mike became a journalist. I had a burning desire to be a journalist from a very early age because I loved books, I loved stories, I loved reading stories, and I loved writing stories. And I was very fortunate because my mum, more than my dad, my mum loved newspapers and the house, our house was always full of newspapers. And at an early age, I can remember lying on the floor of the living room with the broadsheet Daily Express, which was bigger than me. The other thing is I lived very close to both my primary and my secondary school and I would be able to come home at lunchtime, which was a novelty. And my mum always had the radio on and I would come home every lunchtime. And just as I got in the house, the world at one with William Hardcastle would come on Radio 4. And this would have been 1973, 74. And I was just a little boy, eight or nine years old. And I was just captivated by this man. This is the world at one with William Hardcastle. He had a remarkable voice. And I would sit just wrapped by stories of Vietnam, stories of Africa, stories of Watergate, what was happening all over the world. And I was just a kid. I was like a sponge. And I can remember from a very early age, knowing that I wasn't going to be a footballer, wasn't going to be a pilot, which is what I really wanted to be. And I would be a journalist. And so it proved. I think it's fair to say that you've had a brilliant career. You've had a really good career and you must have covered some amazing stories over your time. Are there any that really stood out to you? Ones that you will just never forget? Probably for the wrong reasons, but Dunblane was easily the hardest story and the most tragic and the biggest. When I worked in television, laterally, I built up a bit of a reputation for being the guy who was tough and I would get all the dirty jobs. I would get all the doors to knock on after there'd been a murder, trying to vox pop people outside court, all that kind of thing. And I would get sent to disasters and crime scenes and, and things. You know, the Glasgow bin lorry tragedy, the Clutha helicopter tragedy, the Glasgow airport terror attack. You know, these two guys tried to ram their car into the airport. You know, it still preys on my mind today quite a bit and I still get great pangs of, of sadness about particularly Dunblane, those dreadful events for those beautiful little children. It was just ghastly. And I, I think about them all the time. On the other hand, I think about the amazing things that I was fortunate enough to get paid to go and do. Big, big stories I worked on, things that affected the people of Scotland, like general elections, like the independence referendum, like the Brexit debate, like the Commonwealth Games was a great one because Glasgow's Commonwealth Games in 2014 was colour and emotion and happiness and performance and athletics and all the rest of it. But, you know, all too often I got the hard job. I got the difficult job because I had built up this sort of reputation as being the foot in the door guy, which suited me because if I didn't do it, then potentially nobody would do it. And that, you know, you can't operate a news operation like that. There has to be somebody to ask the difficult question. And I was always deemed to be big enough ugly enough to do that and to look after myself. Let's talk about looking back and reflecting because when I landed my dream job as a presenter I was given this awesome bit of advice by one of my really close friends. They said don't forget to take a few moments out of each day and just remember back to where you'd come from. Now you were saying earlier that you were this little boy who had always wanted to be a journalist and then you have had this amazing career, really long career where you've covered some amazing stories did you ever during that career take some time out to reflect and remember where you had come from 
all the time. And I would sometimes, and this is going to sound maybe a little bit odd, but I was, you know, I came from the highlands of Scotland. I grew up in Inverness and we didn't have a commercial radio station until I was like 17. You know, we didn't have colour television until I was, I can't remember, nine or 10. And, and it was, in a sense, it was a little bit of a backwater. But I knew what I, I knew what I always wanted to do. And when I got there and when I was, event, you know, I didn't start at Scottish television and get the big story on day one. You know, I was there for years as a production journalist before I got anywhere near any kind of big story. But when the big story started coming, once I'd been there sort of 10 years, I would, as you say, just sit and pinch myself to say, my goodness me, you know, I'm here. I did several stories that were at the epicenter of the world's attention. And one of them was, sadly, the death of Princess Diana. And I think she was killed in the accident on the Saturday night. And by 10 o'clock on the Sunday morning, I was at Balmoral just a few hours before the rest of the world's media and press and media. And I sat there and I pinched myself because this story was at the epicenter of the world's attention. And I was right there. Another story similarly was when McGrahy was released from Greenock Jail, the one man who was convicted of the Lockerbie bombing. And it was deemed that because he was terminally ill that he would be released on parole. And I was there at Greenock Jail when he was released. And equally that day, the world was looking at the story that I was working on. And you're right, I would sit and I would just pinch myself to the extent that here I am, a little boy from Inverness who came down to the big city, could write a story and was quite tough. There I was right in the middle of all of these events. It really was dream time some of the times. And obviously, as I said, some of the things I did, I really wish I hadn't been there, but you can't pick and choose. You've got to do the stories. For the bulk of my television career, I lived 10, 15 minute train journey away from the city centre. And from the moment I started my shift to the moment I finished it, it was 150 miles an hour. Mm. And nothing mattered other than the story. Nothing mattered other than getting it on the air. And you would kick and elbow and scream and bite and scratch your way to get to the, you know, your minute and a half onto the air. And some of the things that you had to do, you were the least of it. The story was the thing that mattered. And I would, you know, sometimes shock myself at some of the things I had to do to get the story. But every night I would jump on the train and have 10, 15 minutes to reflect. Mm. And without fail, that train journey was a kind of a catharsis it was like I would look back at the story and think of the human element because invariably as I said because I got these stories to do it was a disaster or an accident or a tragedy or a court case or a murder and during the day these were just elements of the story but on the train home I sat and I thought about the family of the victim, the children of the victim or the parents of the victim or you know think through the wider relevance and impact of that story and think of it as a human about humans rather than as a journalist about component parts and you mentioned that as a journalist you will go out there and you will cover some really terrible grim not very nice stories and you know this day and age where mental health is at the forefront of our minds everybody's talking about it and making sure that everybody is okay did you ever get any support when you did go out to cover those sort of stories, the bad ones? Yes, I, I got support from my own family, from my colleagues, primarily from my colleagues. You were the name and the face and the voice of that story on television. Mm. But you were the tip of the spear and behind you was a, an expanding delta of 
people and of process that got you to get that story on the air. And I was the name and the face and the voice, but that story had contributors, you know, by the dozen mm -hmm. sometimes, and everybody was invested in it. And the support came internally. Your network was your cameraman, the camera operator you were working with, the editor you were working with, the news editor you were working with, the producer of the program. There was, you know, any number of people in a team and the support came from your friendship and from your colleagues. Mm -hmm. Now, Mike, you are a man of many talents. You're a reservist, which we are going to talk about. You're an author and you're also a trustee within Erskine. So tell us what that entails. I am so fortunate to be a trustee and an ambassador of my favourite charity. When I was a journalist, I had built up, I think before I joined the military, actually, I had built up a reputation because of my father and because of my interest of knowing things about the military. So if ever there was a story about Faz Lane, or if ever there was a story about RAF Lukers, or if ever there was a story about Dreghorn Barracks, my news desk would say, well, we better send Mike Edwards because he understands what this is all about. So as well as all the difficult crime stories and all that, I would get all the military stories. And included in that was, it must have been the anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, and I was sent to Erskine, and I'd, I'd heard about it, but I'd never been. And I remember interviewing these amazing old men, mm. and a couple of them had been there. So this would have been 1996, and it was the 80th anniversary. And I can remember just sitting with them, and they told their stories, and it was just an amazing thing. And then some years later, it would have been the anniversary of VE Day, and again, I got sent to Erskine, and I just belonged there. I know that might sound a bit odd. I just felt so at home and so comfortable with these men and women. Okay, my own experiences were much, much, much more recent than theirs and, and much, much less dramatic than theirs. Although, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I came under fire several times, but nothing like, you know, nothing like that, my goodness me, nothing like the trenches or, or anything like that. But I definitely felt a connection there. So when I did retire, I took early retirement to look after my mother who had dementia. And shortly after she passed away, I was so fortunate to be approached by Erskine and asked to join the board. So I sit as a trustee on the board. I'm also an ambassador. And unfortunately, the bulk of my first term of office has been the two years of lockdown. Yeah. So everything has been done online and only now are we slowly but steadily getting back in to do things physically. And I can't wait until all the restrictions are lifted and we can do that full time. I just love being with older people, particularly if they've served. I just love listening to their stories. I love sharing their stories. And I just think, you know, older people, depending on their circumstances and their situation, it can go quite badly in some cases. Erskine offers such fantastic care and not just care but community you know socializing contact communication interaction music walks you know it's just fabulous and it's a huge privilege to be a tiny cog in that massive machine let's find out why he decided to join the reserves in the first place my dad was in the royal navy in world war ii and my granddad was in the Royal Navy in World War One. Now, I never met him, but my dad was a little bit older than my friend's dads. And none of my friend's dads had been in the war, but he had. And he used to tell me his stories. And I was always just absolutely wrapped by them. Although he didn't go into too much detail about some things. There were some things he just would not talk about, as did many men 
and women of his of his vintage and experience. But I grew up very early on knowing that I wanted to do in some way what he had done in serving his country. You know, little things like we would watch the Remembrance Sunday service from the Cenotaph religiously every Remembrance Sunday. He would take me to war memorials if we were in France or, or whatever. We'd go to places, we'd go to battle sites. And he was enormously respectful of the men who had gone before. And I, I think I got kind of inured into that feeling as well. That became part of me. I was watching Scotsport, the Scottish television football programme, one Sunday, and the commercial break came on, and I zipped through to make a cup of tea. And just as I got back and sat down, the commercial break was just finishing, and the last advert was an advert exhorting me to join the Territorial Army. And I thought, I'd always wanted to do this. And I thought, well, I was an only child. My dad died when I was quite young, so I was the only sort of you know support for my mum. So I'd never bothered even contemplating joining the Army Reserve because I needed really to be around for her. But I was, you know, a much older man then. And there was a number on the screen, so I jotted it down. And when the programme finished, I went through and phoned it. It may have been a Sunday afternoon, but somebody answered. And I said, look, I've just seen your advert on the TV. Can you tell me a bit more? So the guy said, well, give me your address. I'll send you a, a briefing pack. And I said, well, before you do that, what's the age limit? And he said, no, we stopped taking people at 30. And I was 29, so I thought, well, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And mm. pretty much from there, that was it. And you've actually been deployed yourself, haven't you? You've been to Afghan and Iraq. What was that experience like for you as a reservist? Well, this is going to sound really, really bizarre and really possibly unpleasant to a lot of people, but I volunteered and I had gone on a training weekend with my unit and I got chatting to the training major. And I said to him, I really want to, I really want to go. But I can't go. I don't think I could go for particularly long because of my civilian job. And he said, look, if you can go for three months, you go for three months. If you can go for six months, go for six months. Because I was under the impression that you went for a year, mm. which I could not physically do. So after I spoke to him, I just pressed the button. And I went to my boss and I told him. And he, unbelievably, was quite happy because he was of the view that that kind of experience would do him no harm because I would come back a more motivated, a more stronger, more experienced, more etc, etc. And he was quite right. So I spoke to him because he was basically the ultimate arbiter. And if he had said no, then that was it. But he said yes. So I then went back to my commanding officer and said, look, I can go for six months. And that was it. So I went to Afghanistan for six months. And I took holidays before the six months so that I could do all the pre-deployment training, which is quite extensive. But I was six months in theatre. And I will never forget this. It was just coming up to Christmas, 2002, which is nearly 20 years ago. And I got an email from my commanding officer to say that we are probably going to Iraq very early in the new year, given everything that's happening with President Bush and Prime Minister Tony Blair. And we're probably going to be doing this again in Iraq hands up those who want to be considered. I was so excited about being on operations. I loved it so much. I've still got the email somewhere. I replied to him within seconds to say, I'm all yours. And I came home just in time for Christmas 2002. And by the end of January 2003, I was off again to Iraq. And I know that while you were away, you wrote a book, didn't you, called Friendly Fire. Tell us a bit about that. I always write. And I can remember when I got the sort of tick in the box to say you're going to Afghanistan, I remember thinking, well, 
you know, you're not going to go here again. You're not going to come to Afghanistan again. And it would be folly beyond measure if you went to Afghanistan but didn't write about it. And I had kind of built up a little scenario in my head over maybe a couple of years where I had this hero and a heroine who were boyfriend-girlfriend. There was just a sort of interplay between them. When I found out I was going to Afghanistan, I thought, I need to, I have to work this so that the story moves to Afghanistan. (laughs) And through days and weeks and months of massaging my narrative, I hadn't written a word. Or if I had, I hadn't written very much. And then it sort of came to me over a period of days that my character basically is in the military and he is serving in Afghanistan. So when I was there, because I'd been a journalist and I was automatically very observant, I was able to write about what I saw, what I smelt. And if you go to Afghanistan, you'll know about the smells and the sounds. A senses-busting place. And I managed to shoehorn my story into an Afghanistan context. And I can remember in the barracks where I stayed, I was sharing a room with a colonel in the Scots Guards. I would be battering away at my laptop every night. He would be sitting there going, what are you doing? And I said, I'm writing a book. (laughs) Every night I just poured this out. I absolutely churned this out. And it wasn't a military story. It was actually a love story. It was a romantic adventure about a boy and a girl. And he was in in the SAS serving in Afghanistan. Do you know, one of the night, and I've still got the message, somebody sent me what's called a bluey, which is an airmail letter, an aerogram, written on very thin, very light paper, so that it was cheap to post. And those are in the days when you posted things. And this was a guy who was a soldier in Afghanistan, in Kabul, who was reading my book. And he had written me a letter to say, I'm serving where you served, and I'm driving past the things that you drove past, in your book because you talk about these places and I'm seeing them and it's absolutely fantastic and I smell the same smells that you smell. It was so touching and I will never forget that. That was almost as good as getting on the train in the morning when I went back to work and seeing people reading my book on the train. That feeling was just, you know, if you could bottle that, that was just sensational. Ah, Mike, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this week and last week. Before you go, I know there's a song that you'd like us to play, so tell us what that song is and why you'd like to hear it. I reached the age of 50, and I thought, I kind of had my midlife crisis by going on operations with the military at 36. So I thought I thought that was my midlife crisis. And then I thought, actually, no, I still, I've still got a midlife crisis in me. And I thought, well, I don't really like motorbikes. I'm not going to buy a Harley Davidson. And then I thought, well, I'm not going to go around the world because I've been quite lucky in that I've pretty well been around the world already. I'm very lucky to have traveled. And I thought, I've always wanted to play the guitar. So at the age of 49 and a bit, saw an advert in the paper for guitar lessons in Glasgow. And I went and I loved it, but I wasn't particularly good. So I thought I better do the course again. And all I did the course three times. And I've always loved music. I've always loved rock music. And I've always loved guitar music. I would be automatically predisposed to playing Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which is my favourite band, I would say. But I've since discovered another American country rock band called Blackberry Smoke. And they have just captivated me with their musicianship, with their composition, with their just ability as songwriters and as performers. And my current earworm is Blackberry Smokes living in the song. 
It's like 